Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this episode. I have Kyle King back on the show with me. He was on uh, maybe back in December, so several months ago. And so we thought it'd be fun uh, to follow up on that conversation. Said, hey, you know, we were talking December 2022 kicked over. Now we've been going through about three quarters here. How do we end the year strong? So lots of different things. The last time I talked to Kyle, I believe he was in the Ukraine. That has gone to heck since then. And he's he's in Germany now, but he's really our expert overseas. He uh, he leads some really great things. He can talk about that in a mon- minute. But Kyle, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me back. And yeah, the world has really changed uh, in, in just a number of months. You know, sometimes I can't believe it. So I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. So last time I talked to you, uh, I think it was pretty late at night and uh, you... You're obviously a pro because you're able to keep up, but I see it's light out over there. You're in Germany. You're smiling. This is, these are all good things. But yeah, the, the world has really shifted, um, especially um, at the time of this recording. Literally yesterday, Putin announced the, the annex of additional uh, locations in Ukraine. So just as a situational awareness update, before we talk about this year, really, uh, and how to finish the year strong as an emergency manager, your perspective, you were in Ukraine. I believe either you were evacuated or you shifted over operations to Germany. Give us a lowdown. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I had spent the last couple of years in Ukraine. I was working with an international organization, obviously conned by the U.S. Uh, to that organization. So I was working in southern Ukraine around uh, the Odessa region. And so I was in Ukraine up until about uh, 10 days before the, the Russian invasion. So we were evacuated by the U.S. We were all forced to leave. And you sort of, you know, you get one of those phone calls, which is like, OK, when are you leaving? And I said, maybe next week. And they said, how about tomorrow? You know, <laughs> so, so I said, OK, you know, no problem. Uh, and so but anyway, yeah, you're right. Our operation shifted. I started working with the team and trying to get the rest of them out, uh, you know, after the conflict started and. And it was really, you know, it was somewhat dramatic. You know, I woke up, I was getting a lot of messages at four o'clock in the morning on February 24th saying that, the, you know, the Russian Russian forces had invaded from the southern region and up through Crimea and came into the Harrison region where there's a lot of fighting today. And uh, so it's quite dramatic. And and yeah, the, the entire world has sort of shifted from them and, and seems to have escalated quite a bit, which I think really applies to what is, you know, what a lot of people are working in in the field of crisis and emergency management. You know, I think we really have to pay attention to what's happening there's always a i was talking to george siegel on his podcast tell us how to make it better and he talked about uh from an outsider perspective he's a weatherman he said there's there seems to be a crescendo moment in in, in disasters and it's like well of course there isn't in, in some in some ways because you know you can't always prepare sometimes you know eventually it gets to response right and a lot of different things hopefully it doesn't get to that but in terms of that crescendo moment for ukraine it, it's you, you, your heart goes out to these people that you just hear these harrowing stories, and yet you wonder what is ground truth. And for somebody who's who spent so much time over there, who is thoroughly involved in terms of ground truth, are the assessments made by media in the U.S. accurate? What are what are some of the things that you were like, man? I, I wish people knew like X, Y, and Z about what was happening. Well, there's a lot that really applies, especially for those that work in our field, especially in terms of emergency management with with the way that the crisis is unfolding in Ukraine. 
And one of the conversations I'd like to have is in terms of comparing of what's happening in Ukraine, but also, say, the hurricane that went through Florida. And, you know, one of the ways that we look at this is like if you take in Ukraine, for example, it's just a cascading system of disaster after disaster after disaster. And it's been, you know, just an enormous amount of, you know, heartache and and heartbreak and infrastructure Mm -hmm. and failures in terms of systems and procedures and everything that we normally in that emergency management field typically work with, right? We have our policies, procedures, and systems, and everything sort of the redundancies are in place. And what we're seeing in Ukraine is an absolute failure and collapse of the institutional systems. And so it always prompts in my mind, you know, how would we deal with that? So if you use the example of the hurricane in Florida, just imagine, and this is one topic I'd love to talk about, is sort of, you know, the, the degradation of society resilience as time goes on. And so this is something that's extremely sort of, important to think about because if you take the hurricane in florida and then it you know say we we recover from that we're a resilient society we recover we get back to say 95 percent, but then we're slammed with another hurricane and then yeah. we recover to 80 percent, and then another one and then it's 70 percent. and there's so many effects from that that we just have to deal with in terms of displaced populations i think people don't really understand millions of people have left their home they've lost their property rights they've lost their documentation mm. passports everything there's no payment systems they don't they can't get their pension there's so much in the details of what people don't listen and understand that are really making it a very complex situation to manage real quick we're going to pause for this week's disaster tough endorsements how do you spell doberman emergency management eop oep hva hmp thyra ttx drone pda whenever you need an expert doberman emergency management field experts are there for support contact an expert at dobermanemg.com today the l3 harris extreme 400p radio solves problems and is specifically designed for emergency services how do we know we field tested it with medical urban search and rescue and collapse and confined structures this radio is amazingly tough. Check out the L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio at L3Harris.com right now. Sawyer products offer the best, most technologically advanced solution for protection against the sun, bugs, water, and injuries. Everything from water filtration systems to insect repellents, time release technologies, really amazing stuff. So whether you're at home, work, or at play, make sure you check out Sawyer at Sawyer.com. Okay, let's jump back in. Gosh, and and as you're going through that, I'm like just like naming like all the things that are, uh, you know, life impacting, and yet don't really make the news. There was there was a story that I have, uh, and I kind of touched touched on it last week with Patrick McGinn, good friend of ours who does, uh, who's a, a first responder. I'll just say that I'm going to keep it kind of vague. There was a moment where we thought we lost him in the hurricane. I was talking to him on FaceTime two or three hours before the eye hit saying, Hey, why haven't you evacuated? Get out, get out. He lives in the Fort Myers area. He said, there's no way out now. I can't get out. And he heard a loud boom on, on FaceTime. It cuts out. I called his son. I called the head of USAR for that area. I talked to everybody. Nobody could get a hold of him for more than 24 hours. They finally sent a boat down there. And his house was gone. His all this stuff was gone. His business gone. But they found him helping neighbors in another place. And I was able to connect with him, obviously, after that. Um, Just like him naming off every single thing that he's like, I don't have this. I don't have this. I don't have that. I don't have any access to this. You you know, your your heart really goes out. 
the the big difference between hurricanes and we're now we're kind of switching gears here towards 2022 perspective and beyond you talk about being in the details and i love that the the detail of the the hurricane as nature goes through and destroys critical infrastructure the insanity of trying to take over another place and at the same time destroying everything knowing you're going to have to rebuild it is a, is a pretty stupid mentality to me i don't know but either way being in the details a lot has shifted in 2022 so far three quarters in you know potential recessions prices up and down you know uh salvation army is starting get, getting requests about gas now instead of just like people so being in the details of 2022 what are the some of the big lessons learned for you so far and how do we end this year strong yeah thanks thanks for the question i i, I think there's sort of three key points and i'm still trying to wrap my head around to a certain extent with the, the with a certain level of detail, but I'll start sort of larger and then, and then come down to a specific point, which I have been thinking about recently. Uh, and, and I don't have a great solution for it, but I've been thinking about it in terms of a, a hurdle that we have to overcome with our communities. And, and so starting sort of with the focus of the United States, because a lot of us are looking at the Ukraine conflict through the lens of, our, of the United States and we're very protected in the United States, right? So, Oceans on both sides, you know, Canada in the north, Mexico in the south, you know, we're very, very well protected and secure. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've been thinking about in, in terms of that is when we watch how societies are changing, as you mentioned, the energy crisis, inflation, the economics of everything, banking systems and everything. You know, and I, I read a really interesting article recently about how, you know, FEMA may cause us to lose the next war. And the premise of the article was we've lost the civil defense mentality. And so we've lost this mentality of when FEMA shifted, say, from civil defense, civil defense to all hazards approach, then we lost that sort of ingrained civil cooperation mentality and that we've lost this this sort of urgency for the civilian populations to be prepared for things. And we've addressed it in terms of natural disasters, which is fine. You know, that's fine. But I wonder now as we head towards the end of 2022 and, there, you know, there's really only about eight weeks left of this year counting holidays and things. But, mm. you know, are we seeing going back to civil defense as being a path forward? Not the way it used to be, but inheriting sort of the, the times of today, the technology of today, and what do we need to do today in terms of resilient communications and systems and communities? And so I see an overarching theme coming back. We've had these discussions and with some of my colleagues in NATO, which is like, you know, everything we're talking about now in terms of NATO resilience and NATO baselines, which they're putting out to nations now in terms of mm. what nations need to do in order to be resilient with telecommunications and infrastructure and mass casualties, like the exercise you were working on. These are coming out from organizations like NATO, which yeah. is ironic because it used to be civil defense, you know? And so it's ironic that we're going back in time a bit and I'll sort of just leave that first point in case there's something else you want to add to that. No, I, I actually think, well, I do have, I, I can always talk. I'm a podcaster, so that's there's no problem there. But re really, what as you're talking about that, I was thinking about, you know, NATO specifically, even the DOD side in the U.S. And, and kudos to, uh, you know, Task Force 46. We've had uh, Colonel McKinney on here um, and the, the U.S. Marines. People are starting to say, hey, comparing um, what's been going on the last 20 years in the Middle East to World War II, there's actually a lot of different lessons and they've forgotten a lot of those lessons, i.e. how to deal with populations. When, you, when you're 
uh, entire infrastructure, your, your people, you're talking about mass migration, yes, but sometimes millions of people can't leave. And how do you take care of those people, i.e. World War II, when, when everybody stays? And there is a problem. It, it, you, you mentioned you know, populations preparing, whether it's civil defense or otherwise. There was a mentality before that you first had to take care of yourself. You look at Puerto Rico, specifically in Hurricane Marina, Maria, they were actively saying on the news, the government officials, I thought FEMA was just going to come here and solve all my problems. It's like, uh-oh, there's a there's one an, an information gap here, but there's also a lack of preparedness. And when people respond wholly on government, whether it's natural disaster or the big boom stuff with war, there's going to be a severe lack of resiliency. Now, my audience will probably laugh at me because I, I always push back on resiliency as not being the king, i.e. Kyle King, but resiliency has its place. And in, in terms of civil defense, yes, absolutely. We need to get back to uh, looking at, uh, from a government perspective, taking care of infrastructure, from a people perspective, taking care of yourself and, and your neighbors first before people are able to get to you, even long term, right? So it, it's Ukraine is is um, an actively evolving uh, warning sign for everybody else who has to deal with war potentially. Because what do you do when when you have nothing? You know? yeah, absolutely. And, you know, those are the affected populations that we continually deal with, especially with international crisis is like, OK, it, it's always the people that can't evacuate. So it's always and we, we generally you know couch these things under sort of. Um, you know, we might call that for as one example, you know, women, peace and security programs, because those populations are disproportionately affected by conflict. Mm -hmm. Right. And so those are always a focus of the international organizations. And, and what I find most fascinating as we're watching this is and it doesn't have to be a war at home. Right. But it's like mm -hmm. prolonged periods of instability. And that could come in many, many different ways. And I think that that's like really that. a teaching point for us because we're, we're watching prolonged periods of instability. I'm still wrapping my head around it as I try to formulate it, but we're watching these long periods of instability, which lead into degrading services and capabilities to the public. And I'll give one example. So I sit in the UN sort of coordination meetings and, and that happen. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, or at least they're presenting information on how many hospitals have been destroyed by the Russian Federation, how many have been targeted. And so if you think about your, you know, level one, level two trauma centers in your own community, and then you lose one. And then mm -hmm. you have to shift that population to somewhere else. And then you lose those or clinics or fire stations and having to continually respond, continually to try and mitigate the effects of instability with mm -hmm. degrading service delivery. And I don't think we've sort of exercised to a point of where we are able to have that sort of that type of redundancy or really that type of mentality. And how are we just going to continue to the point of failure and then see what that really looks like? And, and I'll, I'll give it. Go ahead. Please. No, please. I'll give a, just another example is because if you just simply turn on the TV and you see videos coming out of Ukraine and there's always a, a, a drone that hits a building or a missile hits a building, it's always the firefighters are out there. They're, they're still putting out the fires. You still have to deliver public service. You still have to have hospitals. You still have to have doctors. Systems have to function. And mm -hmm. you're doing it in a, in a prolonged period of instability. But eventually those systems start to degrade over time. And what I, I sort of phrase, even though you don't like the word very much, but I call it sort of degrading resilience, right? We just, mm. we can't bounce back anymore. And you can only bounce back to half as what you used to be yesterday. So 
I would like to clarify that I'm not against resiliency. I, I just I just think we we talk so much about resiliency that we forget how to mitigate and how to respond. But yes, resiliency absolutely has its place. And you know what the Mike Tyson quote, right? Everybody has a plan until they get the punch in the face. Emergency managers have to deal with the punch in the face, punch in the gut, really. And uh, I, I think I think what you're saying is true. I was trying to think of the term that you you might be able to help me out here. It's an economics term. You you're, you're using you're using the word uh, degrading, and I think that's accurate. People think that, especially the public. When I can't work in this hospital, I can just shift everything over. And that's never true. It's not true in industry. It's not true in emergencies. It does degrade. And there is a ramp up period. Uh, sometimes that spurs innovation. And that's really great. Sometimes it's disruptive. And that innovation is like the worst. Right. And so I, I just remember from uh, college days, gosh, 15 years ago, right? The in studying economics and thinking, okay, if I was going to, uh, the problem set we used in class was um, two factories. If one company does a has a has their own factory and they buy another company and they loop those processes in over, those people can't automatically move over and and function at that same level. The same thing goes with critical infrastructure. The same thing goes with systems. The same thing goes with business. I.e., you can't expect somebody who is an engineer to lose everything, migrate to a different country and operate even as an engineer or, or another or another company, another industry. And I see that all the time in the United States. People think, you know, why do migrants have an issue or immigrants have an issue with performing high level immediately in the United States when they were a doctor, an engineer, a, you know, accountant in their host country? And people forget that there's there's needs to be a lot of education, which is another part of the mass migration problem is the lack of education, language, culture, cultural norms to get people back up to see, uh, speed, so they're not in either emotional or uh, you know existential crisis. So I'm I'm just so so many problems. I mean, it's just getting more complex. But basically, emergency managers are still dealing with a hurricane response season right now we're still in wildfire season something else could happen uh you know global affairs are definitely real and they could get worse right and so what are your your priorities if you're sitting in these un meetings what are the priorities walking out of here it's like okay like this is what i need to focus on to make sure that we can stay resilient yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, one of the things that we've been really focused on is just trying to achieve the next objective and the next step. Like, the, as you mentioned, these problems are so complex that it's very difficult sometimes to get our head around them. You know, and, and one of the points that I wanted to to sort of raise, and, you know, you were talking about sort of shifting populations. Bear in mind, there's like 10 million people that have moved out of Ukraine and within Ukraine since the war started. And imagine, you know, just comparatively speaking, the hurricane in Florida and that displaced population, what if they were never allowed to go back? You know, how do you house them? How do you, what do you do with their jobs? Just like you're talking about that economic factor that is just continually happening over and over again. And so, you know, I think that we need to take the opportunity to learn from these experiences. This is actually sort of in, in the most unfortunate way. It's a living lab for us right now as we're watching this and seeing how things unfold. And one of the things that has been coming up really quite a bit lately is payment systems. Uh, how mm -hmm. do you pay people in these environments? How do you get them their pension? How do you you know, deliver aid 
uh, when the systems are not working. And I think this is something that is, you know, we're having to learn this and it's not just, it's, uh, you know, sort of like you said, you know, to the right of boom or whatever it is that in terms of we're dealing with the effects of a single incident, this is like, mm. you can't get access to your bank for six months. What do you do? You know, and these are like the, the significant problems that have been encountered in Ukraine. And that, and that is, unfortunately it's, it's, you know, trucks and money, you know, that you have to sort of mm. go out for. And some of the aid that's initially just delivered is cash because, you know, we've mm. got to get people some money so at least they can try and sustain themselves. And so there's just, there's a, a wide array of complex problems to look at. And what we're trying to do is really just see what's taking place and see what is, is going on. Uh, another really quick example is you can look at that recent Iranian drone video where it was flying over Odessa mm. and you've got territorial defense or basically like equivalent of a national guard or out there trying to shoot it down with small arms fire. Cause it was too low to be targeted with anti-air it's, mm. It sounds like a lawnmower flying over your head, but you've got, you know, they're actively trying to shoot it down because it's going to target a building. And that's all sort of, if it wasn't for the National Guard, it would have been the police, but it's all sort of civilian response wrapped up in that, in this, mm. in, you know, completely unique type of event. And so we're watching these things and trying to learn the lessons from these to try and figure out, you know, what, what does that tell us about how we need to be prepared and how we need to respond? And, and getting in towards the end of 2022, I think it just reemphasizes the need for communities. Communities need to be strong. We all remember the, the, the pictures of them making Molotov cocktails, you know, preparing for the invasion. This is where all this is originating from and communities need to be strong in dealing with these really significant periods of instability, whether that's from a natural disaster or prolonged instability due to mm -hmm. the grids and rolling blackouts and everything else that goes along with that. Community resiliency is, uh, is, is frightening to think about. You're talking about the cash hands off. And I'm going to ask you about that actually, because I deal with that quite a bit here, obviously in the U S of a cultural, uh, conflict. People think, Oh, don't give people money, give them things. But you're saying in your experience that basically in, in the beginning here, you're dealing with so much that it's actually better just to hand them cash. Can you give a, a, an example of two of, of the, that conflict between things versus cash and, and, and maybe the pros and cons of both? Well, I think if you spend any time in the humanitarian sort of sector, you'll find that cash delivery programs are very successful, mm. you know, because that you're instead of, you know, the transportation and logistics of goods and things like that, you know, you're just delivering, you know, the immediate cash benefit, it, they can use it immediately, they can spend that money, you know, if you're afraid that they're going to do something with it, what are you really afraid of? I mean, if in the in periods of specifically conflict, like they need food and water, they haven't had money for six months, what do you think that they're going to actually do with it? They're not going to go buy a car, you That's know, right. so I don't, I don't really, I understand how theoretically, and, and probably in reality, some people do use cash for certain reasons. But if you look at the overarching effect, you need to understand that cash is one of the most effective mechanisms. And it doesn't have to be simply just in the Ukraine conflict, but it could be, you know, you look at the cash delivery programs that the many international organizations use across Africa, across everywhere. And it's one of the dominant ways that, that aid is delivered in, especially in very austere environments where you may not be able to access, you know, or bring in large trucks for logistics deliveries. The, the pushback that I always provide, and thank you so much for, uh, for saying that. And I agree the um 
you you know, I'll, I'll tell people. I said, well, you know, when they push back on giving out uh, cash handouts, I'm like, do you believe an eighty percent solution is enough? And they usually say yes in emergency management and military lingo. That's that's kind of thing. If eighty percent of your population, which would still be low, I think comparatively, if you actually look at the data, if eighty percent of the population used it for the right thing, i.e., food and water, and twenty percent used it for to buy stupid stuff, one of their PS five or whatever it might be, hopefully it's something positive like that. But even if it was that big of a number, that disparity, you just saved 80% of the population from you having to handhold somebody through a problem. We have to start thinking, and going back to the civil defense mentality here, that these disasters are so large, whether natural or man-made, that you can't hold hand everybody. There's just not enough people. There's not enough resources to do that. And we need to also articulate to that public of you are you know you are responsible for you we will give you everything that we can in order to help you however at one point you need to you need to act as well and uh, start handing over some of that onus just so that we can speed up the the response and recovery time and i think people want that as well i think they want to uh speed up recovery but when when you're blasted by everything and the whole world is literally blowing up around you and you're 10 million people evacuating a country or you're several hundred thousand people, you know, uh, who are dramatically impacted by a hurricane or, or otherwise at, at one point, um, you have to empower people to start acting. Otherwise they will stay in a state of crisis, right? Like that's the big lesson from Japan. I'm probably talking too long here, but the, the Japan uh, crisis was another unfortunate lab where researchers went in there and they said, we're going to give you a really tight schedule. You're going to wake up all at the same time. You're going to eat all at the same time. We're going to give you healthy food and exercise and all these things to essentially trick the body and empowering people to start doing things. And those populations who did that recovered so much faster because the endorphins would release and they would feel a sense of normality and they would be able to act versus treating people like they can't do anything because they're in a state of crisis. It's it, it, funny enough, it's exactly opposite, right? Empowering people actually allows them to recover faster than treating them like a victim. I don't know. That's just kind of my, my perspective on it. But Yeah, and I think, you know, sort of the simplest explanation is the, is the easiest, which is, you know, how rapidly do you want to help people? Who I like and, that. And it really, you know, if you get into an area and you're in limited space, limited time, and you have a limited capability, you want to help people as rapidly as possible. So give them the most flexible options that you possibly can, right? And address immediate That's... need. If you have to sort of divide people like, oh, well, you don't need socks, you need T-shirts, so wait for three days till we come back and bring you T-shirts, you know, or, or whatever the case is on a, a, a very simple example. But, you know, this is where you, you do the, the greatest amount of, uh, help in the shortest amount of period by mm. some of these programs. Yeah, I like that. In fact, I wrote that down while we were talking. Um, I think you just gave us the mic drop moment. Uh, Kyle, you know, it's it's always a pleasure to talk to you, um, especially you overseas. We do so much here in the United States, and we sometimes we have the, the the blinders on a little bit. But the the what's happening around the world impacts the United States and vice versa. And we need to help, whether the communities are in Germany or, you know, in Florida, we need to help empower people to um, to take control of their own lives, build that almost that civil defense or, uh, you know, that that resiliency model. 
Uh, I'm going to do a quick uh, shout out uh, for my Task Force 46 friends who are focusing so much on civilian military operations. That's another thing that we, we should probably have you back on the show to talk about that. But there's a lot of people focusing on it around emergency managers. My call out is that emergency managers need to st start working better with those humanitarians, those military groups, um, even private sector partners to start helping people um, build up their level of resiliency so that they can uh, go out. And I think that's a I think that's a really strong message in, in the ending of 22, especially as everyone's aware of it. You know, they're aware of what's happened in Fort Myers. Or they're aware of what's happening in Ukraine. When these unfortunate situations happen, we have to be cognizant enough to to capitalize on it for their good. And I'm not talking about work. I'm talking about helping people, you know, do something while they're thinking about it. I don't know. What are, you, what are your final thoughts on 2022? What should an emergency manager or a crisis manager focus on? Yeah, that's a that's a really tough question. I mean... As, as what I can tell you is as we head towards the end of 2022, we are looking at uh, basically the lines are blurred now, public, private, military, civilian. And so it really is a whole government approach. And we're looking at it from the pr perspective of even when I was in Ukraine, we saw the military administration come in, take over for the civilian administration. You see them sort of take over key functions for security and you mm -hmm. see all these things unfolding and, and in public private partnership, you know, spinning up the industrial base you know, bringing things back online. And, and that's where I think the lines are completely blurred and we have to be very comfortable in the space of integrated capabilities and interoperability amongst all these different segments of society. Uh, because it takes, and, and really in these really, you know, tremendously insecure environments, it takes everything and everybody. Um, I don't know how many mic drops a person's allowed in a single podcast, but you, you keep on doing it. So uh, Kyle, again, thank you so much for coming on. The lines are blurred uh, you're definitely within in that blurry space right now. You do so much with NATO and with the UN and and with humanitarian groups. And um, if if nothing else, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing and uh, pushing forward this conversation because it's much needed for our field. So I appreciate it. the pleasure's all mine. Good, 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 good. It should be. It's it's a fun job, right? At the end of the day, you have a, you have a good job. All right. So if you like this episode, which you should have, uh, we want you to like and subscribe it when we want to give you a five star rating. Um, comment on social media. We have so many people who send emails. And I'm so grateful for those emails, but I'm pushing every week. I push you guys to uh, be brave enough to ask your questions on social media. Allow Kyle King to answer some of those questions. Uh, I'm also going to give him one more shout out because Kyle not only is the CEO of of Capacity Building International. Capacity Building International. He also often posts about all these jobs that are happening. And if I wasn't the CEO of Doberman and having a good time with my team, I'd probably apply for one of those jobs. They look really fun. But either way, he's doing a lot to help out the field. He's helping out professionals by giving job options. He's giving you some really good advice here and letting you know about the trends that are happening internationally, which definitely impact you if you live in the United States. And so pay attention to that. Follow Kyle King on like LinkedIn, follow Disaster Tough Podcast, ask a question, provide your comments, and we'll see you for the next one. <laughs>